you're starting a new series today called Thankful. Called Thankful. I want to tell you a little story. My daughter Marley, who is now four, she's about a month away from being actually a little less than a month. She'll be five years old, which is mind-blowing. A few weeks ago, uh, she, we were all at home and she was playing with her many toys. She's got plenty of toys, more toys than she needs. And she came up to me um, after playing with certain toys and she said uh, something along the lines of, Daddy, um, I'm done playing with my toys. And I was like, oh, okay, what do you want to do now? Do you want to color or do you want to do puzzles or play games or what do you want to do? And she said, well, no, I, I want some more toys. I'm like, well, why? She said, well, because I've already played with all the toys that I have. I was like, well, sweetie, that doesn't mean we're done playing with them. We can keep on playing with those toys. And just because we play with the toys we have doesn't mean we need more toys. And inevitably, her lip experienced gravity and her shoulders collapsed. And the whining began coming about. And honestly, um, my indignation began to rise because I'm sitting here thinking, sweet, precious little girl, what you're not considering is the home that I have provided for you, that God has provided ultimately, but I think you all understand where I'm coming from. You're not considering the home that I'm providing, the food that I give you that's more than you could ever eat, um, the clothes that are in your closet that are more than you need, um, the bed that you have, all the many toys that you have, uh, too many toys, and all you're thinking about and allowing to affect your emotions and your attitude and your perspective is the fact that you can't get something more, or something new, or something else. See, as my daughter's provider, as her father who loves her and wants what's best for her, as the one who has made the way for her to have a safe house and more clothes than she could need and more toys than she could play with, more food than she could eat, all those things I just said, in light of those truths of who I am to her and what I have done for her, in light of that, her attitude stunk. Her attitude was offensive to me. Now, she's four. I get it. Uh, and I give her grace because she's four and her understanding isn't developed and her emotions are strong. And, and so I give her grace. But I do try to turn that into a teachable moment and tell her, honey, there are kids that don't know what they're going to eat today. There are kids that have <clears throat> one pair of clothes. There are kids that have one toy or no toys. We are so blessed that we should be thankful. And we don't need to be thinking about what we don't have. We need to be thankful for what we do have. And uh, the preacher that day wasn't too successful in changing her mind. It took a little, a little while to get over it. See, the problem was not that she didn't have a means to have fun. She did. She had toys. She had books. She had games. She had all that. It wasn't that she didn't have a means to entertain herself. The problem was her cultivated appetite for new her training for better or different or other. It wasn't that she didn't have. It was that she had developed these habits and this appetite, this desire for something other than. And it's cute in the story of my daughter. But the fact is, 
we do the same thing. I mean, if you had the iPhone 11 and then right after that, the commercial comes out for the iPhone 12, you feel ripped off, right? You feel gypped. You're like, I just bought what was the latest and now there's a new one come out and you feel like because there's a new and a better that the one you have is now longer or no longer now good enough that you want the better one. Well, that one has two more pixels than mine has and it has a little bit better of a screen or a faster process, whatever it could be, little thing that's better. We start feeling like what we have is inadequate. This is also uh, the genius and profession and skill of the world's best marketers who are working with all these companies for their products that are working tirelessly and endlessly and strategizing and researching and planning to market and promote something in a way that makes you feel like, I need that. Or if I just had that, man, if I, I would feel, oh, if I could get that thing or if I could go on that trip or if I could finally have X, Y, Z then I could be happy. The other way that this manifests in our lives is through keeping up with the Joneses. The whole, you need this because they have one. Oh, did you see so-and-so just got the newest? Oh, did you see that the Joneses got a new car? All of a sudden, my car that's a few years old or 10 years old, that's running fine and paid off or whatever, we start wrestling with, is it good enough? Or, and, and wanting the better, the newer, the what we don't have. Another challenge with this is the natural chemistry and wiring of our brains. The fact that when we buy things, we get a hit of dopamine. This is called the shopper's high. One of the newer and more common ways we experience this is two ways. Online, clicking buy or purchase or complete transaction or confirm. The other way that we experience this relative to that is when that little brown box with the smiley face shows up on our porch. In fact, there's many people who have become so addicted to this, that, that dopamine hit, that they can't have a day go without having that box show up on their porch. So we get so excited about that that new toy, that new trinket, <clears throat> keeping up with the Joneses, that new package that arrived. The problem with this is that it's never enough. The problem isn't getting new things. There's nothing intrinsically wrong or inherently wrong with an iPhone or a car or a house or a boat. They're, those things are neutral. There's nothing inherently wrong about them. The problem is that it's never enough. And if we look to those things, those experiences, whatever it might be, to keep us satisfied or give us that dopamine hit or, or make us feel like we have value or worth because we're like the Joneses now or better than the Joneses now, it's never enough. In fact, there's a wise old preacher named Solomon who wrote one of the books of the Bible called Ecclesiastes. I want to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 10 right now. And there he says, <clears throat> he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, this is also vanity. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income, meaning he's not going to be satisfied with what, 
what he gets, what he earns, what he brings home. It says, this is also vanity. In fact, this is really the mantra and theme of the entire 12 chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes is this old, wise, end-of-his-life experienced man who says, I've had it all. I've achieved it all. I've accomplished it all. Wealthiest man, Solomon, was known as the wealthiest man who ever lived. He had everything, all the pleasures, all the possessions, all the domain, all the achievements, all the accomplishments. This is what he's saying in the book of Ecclesiastes. And over and over and over, he says, I've had it, I've achieved it, I've accomplished it, I've attained it, I've experienced it, and it's all vanity, meaningless, is what he says over and over and over. I like to use the illustration of these things, whatever we have in our life that we look to satisfy us, complete us, make us happy, they're no different than that nook or pacifier that your baby has or had. How does that work? It's the baby starts crying because the baby has a hunger. And for whatever reason, maybe it's not the right time for you to feed them or you're not able to feed them at that moment. And so in order to pacify the hunger, you give them a pacifier. And even though they hunger for milk, in that moment you can't give it to them or we don't want to for whatever reason, you attempt to pacify, get them to stop longing and therefore stop crying and make your situation a little more comfortable by pacifying. We think that that's just something that happens with babies. But the truth is, it happens with us all. All these things that we think, whatever it is that we think, if I could just get that, then I'll finally be happy. If I could finally get the bigger home, if we could finally stretch out and have more space, if we could finally get that bigger yard, if we could finally get a new car, pacifiers. See, all those things that we think are going to make us happy, all those relationships, or toys, experiences, they end. Or the pleasure or the experience or that dopamine hit fades and goes away. And inevitably, every time, even when we get that newest phone or whatever that newest thing is, it's fun, it's exciting. In a moment, for a moment, we feel that complete feeling, that happiness. It's only a matter of time before we realize, wait a minute, I'm still hungry for more. Still desiring something else. And if, we can do, if we're wise, we'll step back and realize, wait a minute, that thing that I think I need to be happy or thankful is just like the pacifier for the baby. So the issue at hand is that we think that discontentment, which is really what we're talking about. We're talking about not being content with what we have. Discontentment, we think, is just a little bad. Like it's, it's, yeah, the Bible makes it clear that we shouldn't be discontent. We should be content. And so if it's sinful, it's, <clears throat> it's minor, it's small. It's like gluttony or greed or, or, or gossip, all the G's, I guess. Or, or white lies, if there was such a thing. Those things that we think, oh, that's, that's not that big of a deal. Like, really? It's not like murder or rape or stealing or, you know, the bad stuff. I'm, it's the small stuff. 
which is not a biblical paradigm. All sin separates us from God. So we think that, that contentment or discontentment is not a big deal. The problem is we need to have a biblical view of all things, of all behaviors, of all attitudes. And the biblical view of, of, of discontentment is that discontentment is actually profoundly sinful. It's a big deal. Let's see what scripture has to say about it. Let's go to Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to give you a minute to turn there. Or you can look on the screens and I hear those pages turning. <laughs> no, you don't. This isn't, okay, that's a lame joke. Exodus chapter 20 in <clears throat> verse 17. This is the infamous account of the uh, giving of the Ten Commandments. Finally, in verse 17, he says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, meaning you shouldn't look at your neighbor's house and go, I want that. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, same thing, obviously, or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is in the Ten Commandments. This is clearly a big deal to God. This is in the same list where he says, shall love the Lord your God above all other things and have no other idols before him. This is in the same list where he says, you shall not murder this is a big deal. He's saying we shouldn't look at what other people have and long for it, covet it in our hearts. Another passage that kind of shows how bad this is is in Jude, verses 14 through 16. It says this. Well, actually, let me give some context first. He's talking about, uh, he's kind of just going through a litany of, of wicked people, what they're like and what they do. And he talks about the judgment that's coming against wicked people. In verse 14, he says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds, of the ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So, so pause right there. Did you hear one word over and over and over there? Convict all the ungodly of all their deeds, of the ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Judah's saying right here, he's talking about Anytime in scripture that you see something repeated over and over, the author was putting intentionality, putting emphasis on that. This passage is about, is about people that are ungodly, in case you missed that, in case it's not clear. Verse 16, he continues, these are grumblers, malcontents. Following their own sinful desires, they are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. So he gives this context of ungodly, 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 ungodly. And if you could guess what was going to come in a list, if he was going to define those people and put adjectives on them, we would be expecting those things like these ungodly people are wicked fornicators, they're, steal they're thieves, they're murderers. What does he say? Grumblers. Malcontents. Following their own sinful desires. They're loudmouth boasters and showing favoritism to gain advantage. And so 
I say all that to say this is not some light thing. Being discontent, complaining and grumbling, God's not cool with it. We need to see it for what it is and not, not be okay with it in our lives. Let scripture confront us. Let the Holy Spirit convict us and that conviction be an invitation into repentance from it and into gratitude for all God has done. See, we don't like to acknowledge that our discontentment is far more offensive to God than what we feel it should be. See, ultimately, discontentment is a form of forgetting. When we're discontent, we are actively forgetting. There's four things. One, discontentment is forgetting the character of God. When we're not satisfied, not happy, not thankful with what's in our lives, we're forgetting the character of God. We're going, God, you're not sovereign. You're not in control. You, you, your character has not made way, has not arranged and orchestrated things for me to be thankful and happy. We're forgetting that God is good. And we sit here and we look at our circumstances, what we have, don't have, all that. And we determine that God, if I don't have what the Joneses have, or if I'm going through this thing that other people are not going through, etc., God must not be good. We forget. That he is good, that he is faithful, that he is loving, that he is sovereign, that he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing. And therefore, we need to trust him and be thankful. Two, discontentment is forgetting what's already been done and what's already been given. Discontentment is forgetting what's already been done and what's already been given. Remember the Israelites in the wilderness? They're in the wilderness after being set free from 400 plus years of Egyptian slavery, which they had already seen the magnificent displays of the power of God through the 10 plagues in Egypt. They've already seen a pillar of fire come out of the sky and stop the Egyptians from overtaking them and and slaughtering them. They've seen God part the sea and make way for them to walk through as on dry ground. And then they've seen the Egyptians come in after them and God crash the sea on them and destroy their enemies. They have seen miracle upon miracle, magnificent, profound displays of God's power and God's faithfulness. Yet if we fast forward in the book of Exodus, we get to the place not very far where they start grumbling and complaining. In fact, there's a time where God provides for them in the wilderness this food called manna. It's bread-like is what we can see from Scripture. Manna in the Hebrew literally means, what is it? There's this bread that's just appearing on the ground every morning out of nowhere that God made for them to provide for them miraculously. And they're like, what is it? That's God's provision. Let's eat it. All this stuff And they forget all that God has done. And there's points where they go, we should go back because we had it better. Moses isn't leading us well. And they start grumbling and complaining. And then even beyond that, as if it wasn't enough that God provided for them by giving them this, what is it, this manna bread every morning. 
I start going, can we have something else? Seriously, we're getting really tired of this manna stuff. And I feel like God must have felt very similar to the way that I felt when my daughter was like, can I have something else, something new? And we can see in Scripture that he's very displeased with that, with the, the Israelites. Even still, he grants their request and sends in flocks of quail to give them some fresh bird meat to eat. See, they had forgotten what God had already done. And like the Israelites, we begin to feel entitled by what God has already graciously given to us. They felt entitled and wanted to ask for more. Felt entitled by all the things that God had done for them and provided for them, the, the way that he protected them and set them free. We begin to feel the same entitlements. We begin taking his gracious provisions and his gifts as common. We take them for granted and we become ungrateful, unthankful, discontent. See, when we're discontent, we're ultimately saying, God, what you've given me is not good enough. I also need X, Y, Z to be thankful or to be happy. When we're discontent, when we're not happy and content and thankful, we're saying, God, what you have already done, what you have given to me is not good enough. I want to go to Romans chapter 8. Because even if we look at our lives and we look at circumstances and we look at, at who has what and who has more, who has less, who's going through more, who's going through less, we get into this comparison game where we then lobby judgments against God and attack his character, his goodness, his faithfulness, wondering why. And we'll look at Romans 8, 32. The Apostle Paul to the church in Rome says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What is Paul saying here? He's like, man, God gave you his son. He's already given you the greatest, most costly, most wonderful thing that he could ever give you. He's given us his best. He's given us everything. He said, will he not freely give you all things when he's already given you that? And so what that ought to make us do is, if Paul's telling the Romans, man, God has given you his best in giving you Jesus. He didn't even withhold his own son from you. So will he not also freely give you all things? Well, then how come God isn't giving me all things? How come he's not giving me the, the Lexus? How come he's not giving me the, the pay raise? How come he's not giving me X, Y, Z? Well, if he's not, then we need to evaluate and consider maybe God's smarter than I am. And also, sometimes my kids want things that are not good for them. Sometimes my kids have appetites or desires that I know are actually for their destruction. And I think sometimes God's protecting us. And I think, who knows why? But what we do know is God is good and faithful and that he's already given us Jesus. He already sacrificially gave his son to pay for the sins of mankind. And we were his enemies when he did this. We were sinners, enemies with God, rebels against him. 
And because of his great love, because of his great mercy, his compassion, his grace, he looked at us, his enemies, and said, I still love and I love you so much that not only, I'm not going to show you how much I love you by giving you a car or a job or a career or achievement or, or a spouse and all those things that, no, 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 I'm going to show you how much I love you and how good I am and how faithful I am by forgiving your sin through giving my son Jesus Christ on the cross. And that's kind of like what's going on with my daughter. And I'm going, I've got a roof for you. I've got a, a home, a bed, clothes, all this. I have given you all this and you're sitting here looking at what you don't have. Discontentment is... is, is it's disgusting to God. When we are discontent, we're ultimately saying, God, what you've given me is not good enough. Discontentment, thirdly, is forgetting our true home. It's forgetting this is not our home. This is, we don't belong here. <clears throat> In the same passage, Romans 8, <clears throat> excuse me, Romans chapter 8, let's rewind a little bit. Look at verse 18 here. He says, Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time, here in this world, he's saying, are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. He's saying these sufferings, these things that we're going through, they're not worth comparing to what's to come to what we're going to receive. In fact, there's another passage where Paul tells the church, he says that our suffering is actually working for us an exceedingly greater glory or reward. That these things that we're experiencing that we, that, that we allow to make us discontent. Paul's saying those things are actually working for you. And he said, for, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth being compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, we have the first fruits of the Spirit groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And there was more I was going to read, but for time's sake, I'm not going to go through all that passage. But Paul is saying right here that, man, all of creation, and not only creation, our bodies, our lives, have this, this groaning, these labor pains, these longings, these deep senses, these convictions, this drawing, that this is not our home. We're hungry for redemption. We're hungry for the day that God will have reconciled all things and redeemed all creation to himself, having restored what was destroyed by sin, having wiped out evil, having wiped out sickness, having wiped out pain and suffering, having conquered all of it and restored and created a new earth where we have new bodies. That's the hunger, the hope that we're looking forward to and longing for. We forget that this is not our home. 
We're here as pilgrims passing through on a mission. And it's when we forget that this is not our true home, when we forget our true home, when we take our eyes off of the realities of heaven, when we take our focus off of that we are only here for a time on assignment, we start looking at the pleasures of this world or the trinkets and toys that are available to us, the trying to seduce us and distract us, making us go, oh, I need, or oh, I want, and if I could, this is not our home. Our answer, our complete answer is not here. C.S. Lewis, the brilliant apologist and Christian author who you'll find, I, I guess I love to quote him a lot, he said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If all these things in our life, all these pacifiers can't satisfy us, not to help us see that this is not the answer, this is not our home, our hope is in eternity where we will no longer long for or hunger for something else or other or more or next. And right now we've been given the seal of the Holy Spirit to confirm that that day is coming for us, to satisfy us and fill us and indwell us and empower us and give us joy, give us peace, give us contentment. But also to keep pushing us forward and setting our hope towards that day. We become discontent when we forget our true home. And finally, fourth, discontentment is forgetting our true purpose. Not too long ago, we went through Philippians. You remember all that stuff that Paul said in the opening chapters of his letter to the Philippians? When he was like, yeah, yeah, I'm in prison, but you know what? It's all good because actually the prison guards now are hearing about Jesus. So he's taking his eyes off of, of what could easily cause discontentment. He's going, you know what? Yeah, but guess what? Man, actually, it's for the good because I'm getting to tell these guards about Jesus. So it's okay. I'm content. He would later, later in that same letter say, I've learned in whatever circumstance I'm in to be content. That's where he goes on to the famous verse to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying, I can be content with, with suffering. I can be content with riches and well-being. Neither of those are, are, are something that should cause us to become discontent. He's saying, I'm content in whatever state I'm in. He's like, yeah, I'm in prison, but it's all working out for the gospel. His mission that he was on, his purpose, helped him be content. The fact that he had Jesus, if you read chapter 3, he's going, I, I discard all these things for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ. That's all that matters is what he's saying. He also went on to say, yeah, you know what, I'm kind of hard-pressed. I, I really kind of would rather get out of this life and go be with Jesus. I'd rather get out of here and go be with him. But hear the mission come out. He says, it's better for you guys that I stay. So I'm going to stick around and keep laboring for you, keep working for you, that there may be fruit. He, he remembered his true purpose. Discontentment didn't have room for it in his heart because he was focused on his mission, on his purpose from God. <clears throat> another scenario on the flip side of the coin of someone who did lose sight of this in 2 Timothy chapter 4 Paul writing to Timothy talks about a guy named Demas and to Timothy he says this in 2 Timothy 4.10 he said Demas 
and love with this present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This guy Demas, who was a faithful servant on the mission of God, traveling with Paul, working on the gospel mission, spreading the news and telling people about Jesus, Paul says he fell in love with this present world. He was seduced and drawn away by the things of this world. And he's deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He left me and left the mission. All of us have the capacity for this. All of us are capable of doing what Demas did. That's why we have to guard our heart and and recognize when discontentment arises and squash it, confront it, fight it, call it out, repent of it, and turn our hearts back to God's faithfulness and his goodness and his sovereignty and why we should trust him and also be thankful for all he has done for us in giving us his son. I've heard it said before, man, if Jesus never, if God never did anything else for us, if he never answered another prayer, if he never did anything else for us other than paying for our sin with Jesus, man, that is every reason to praise God with every breath we've got for the rest of our life, to serve him with every ounce of strength that we have. Amen? I'm going to assume you said amen in the room. See, we become thankful when we remind ourselves of the truth and set our minds on God. It's the bottom line for this week. We become thankful when we remind ourselves. What if, we, what if the Israelites, instead of going, oh man, this situation we're in, ah, oh, this is the worst. What if instead of that, they would have gone, man, this stuff, <clears throat> I'm having a hard time right now, but, but you know what? God got us out of Egypt. You know what? He got us through the Red Sea. You know what? He already did. He's going to be faithful. See, this series is called Thinkful. Yeah, it's a play on words. Think full. Think on the fullness of God. When we set our mind, our, our, our view, our vision, our focus on the faithfulness of God, what he has done, what he's already given us, the fact that he has given us his spirit, the fact that he has forgiven our sins, the fact that he has paid for our debt, our offense against him, the fact that he did that with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. When we focus on that, remember that. When we remind ourselves that this is not our home, when we remind ourselves of our ultimate purpose and our mission, when we remind ourselves of what God has done, when we preach to ourselves, we kick that discontentment out of our hearts. Let's start stirring up and rising. This is what I do. Katie and I, there's been times we've been on uh, drives before. Many of you parents might be able to relate to this. There's been times where the kids fall asleep in the car and it's like, oh, it's kind of special us time that we can have now. We don't want to stop and get them out. So let's have a drive. And so we drive around. And I remember one time we were driving through a neighborhood with really incredible homes. And, and we said, oh, man. Look at that place. Oh, it's beautiful. This house over here is beautiful. And then I found in my heart a, uh, must be nice. It's like, wait a minute. And then while we're driving, I began preaching to myself and to us and saying, God has given us everything we need. A new house, a better house, bigger house won't fulfill, won't satisfy. Began preaching to myself. I've got Jesus. We have everything we need and just open the door and kick that discontentment out. I have to do this a lot. I have to do this all the time. And I imagine that you might need to as well. 
But if we think on the fullness of God, it causes gratitude in our hearts. Hebrews 13, five says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Think about that. The author of Hebrews is saying, keep your, free, or keep your life free from the love of money. Notice the love of money. Many people misquote Bible saying, oh, love, or, or money's the root of all evil. No, it's the love of money that's the root of all evil. Being rich is not a sin. Having a lot of money is not a sin. Letting your heart be possessed by it and long for it. That's where the sin tech comes in here. And this is why he says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, pay attention to that. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, hang on. Wait. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The author here is saying, be content with what you have. God, you have God. You have Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit. Be content with what you have because he said he's never going to leave you or forsake you. We have the Lord. So therefore we need to squelch and, and squash and resist and push away the desire for more or other. That love for money. That feeling if I could just. We need to be content with what we have. I could go into another passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. I don't have time to today, but there's a verse in there where he says, Godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. There's another passage in the other letter that Paul wrote to Timothy where he says, Charge those who are rich in this world not to be high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who, free, who get, freely gives us all things to enjoy. He's saying, so if you've got it, it's, it's not evil to have money. Money's neutral. Possessions are neutral. Where the sin steps in is in our heart and our view of money, our view of possessions. And I've heard Piper say over and over, many times talking about God has given us money, possessions, cars, homes, so that we would use them in a way that it's clear that it is not our treasure, but Christ is. Money has been given to us to show that money is not our treasure, Christ is. Cars have been given to us to show that the car is not our treasure, Christ is. Our homes have been given to us to show that the home is not our treasure, Christ is. All the different things in our life, when we step back and remember, we've got everything we need because we have the greatest thing that we could ever receive, Jesus Christ. We fight and resist discontentment. Focus on what we have. Remember we're not home yet. Remember we're on mission. Remember what God has done and has given. And that's the root, the anchor of thankfulness and gratitude in our heart. God, I ask today that you would help any and all of us repent of discontentment because I'm pretty sure everybody in here has wrestled with it from time to time. And if any of us have it right now, God, I help you. I ask that you would help us see it Confess it, call it out, repent of it, set our sights on you. God, I ask that you would help us to think full, think of the fullness of God in a way that stirs gratitude and thanksgiving, recognizing you've given us all that we need. We have more than we need, and we should be content with what we have because that gives glory to you to show that we're satisfied and content, not in stuff, 
not in achievements, not in experiences, but we're satisfied and content in knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen.